Well, grab your Bibles and open them up to Hebrews chapter 4. Um, as Derek said, my name is Jim Fickard. I'm pastor from up in Communion Church in Mount Vernon. Um, and uh, at Communion, we've been working our way through a series uh, called Greater. Um, and this is a conversation between the Old Testament book of Leviticus and the New Testament book of Hebrews. Um, and those, those two books really fit together nicely. Um, he, or Leviticus really kind of sets us up for Hebrews to declare that Jesus is greater than all that has come before. Uh, but the point of Hebrews is not that Jesus is greater than a bunch of other things, that Jesus is just greater than this and greater than this and greater than this. It's trying to make the point that from him and through him and to him are all things. Which is to say Jesus is not just the greatest of all, but all that exists, exists for the sake of revealing his glory. He is the key to understanding every part of the world that we live in and how it functions. Now, the section we're going to look at today is kind of a transition point in the book of Hebrews. Um, these verses act as sort of an exclamation point over the first half of the book. Um, and then they're kind of a lead into now the second part, which is all about the priesthood of Christ. And so there's a lot in the first four chapters. I'm not going to spend a ton of time going over all of it. But, but the section leading up to what we're looking at today is on rest. Chapter 4 begins by saying, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And what he's saying is God is offering us this rest that we can either enjoy or miss out on. And the warning from the author of Hebrews is not to live your life in such a way that causes you to miss out on the rest that God offers. Now the Sabbath that is being offered in, in Hebrews is an eternal rest, right? Which gives both present and future connotations. It's the promise that we will rest in the future, right? Eternal life. Kids learned all about it today. Um, but as we wait, God gives us glimpses of that future rest now. And he does that in relation to himself. In other words, right now in this life, we practice disciplines. We do things that, that connect us more deeply to Christ and the rest that we have in him. And we do this with the assurance that he will complete everything that he has promised, that he will bring us into full rest. Now, this peace and this rest, they're connected to the Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom is the absolute perfection of all things. The perfect balance of all of our relationships that we will experience in heaven. And knowing that that is coming gives us peace to live in a world that never seems balanced. The idea here is that we can rest because we trust in God's promise of shalom. We can rest because we know that our efforts to produce perfection, produce peace in this world will always be short. And so this concept of shalom, this concept of God's peace, separates Christians from both optimism, over-optimism, I should say, and pessimism. It keeps us from just lamenting that the world is falling apart, but it also keeps us from putting all of our effort into building heaven on this earth. It gives us the option of being at peace, knowing that God is in control of everything and leading everything to his good ends. Now, in order to be able to rest in that, in order for that to be good news, you have to believe that God is good, 
and you have to believe that he is actively working in the world. And that's what the section we're going to look at today does for us. It presents God in such a way that we get to see how he is blessing his people now and shaping them toward shalom. And it gives us confidence in how Jesus is ushering us into his rest. Now with that, let's get into it. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 12. We're going to be taking two sections that you have probably heard before, um, very common passages of scripture, and looking at them in context. Verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now you probably heard that before. Usually that is kind of pulled out and used as uh, to build a doctrine of scripture, right? And for good reason. Um, this, this verse is a clear, succinct description of what the word of God is and what the word of God is doing. But as you read it in the context of Hebrews, what you see is the author is more concerned with, with who is writing this word, who is in control of this word, than it is with the word itself. Right, while the verse gives credibility to the power of Scripture, it's actually given to us as a means to find our peace in God. The author of Hebrews wants us to experience the peace of God through our interactions with his word. And so he makes three statements about what the word of God is and how it works, all which should lead us towards peace. And so we're going to look at each one of these. The first thing he says is that the word of God is living and active. Which means the Bible is not just dead words on a page. Right? It's not limited um, by the reader like most communication is. The Bible is living. And the reason why the word of God is living is because God is actively working in and through his word in order to shape his people. Now, there's all these debates and arguments out, about, out there about Scripture, about whether or not we can trust it since it was written down and passed along by fallible human beings through time. Right, right now, a great deal of kind of Christian deconstructivism and doubt is being driven by this idea that, that the Word of God is not sufficient. Right? The concept is this. If, if an eternal God, if, a, if, a, if an all-powerful God were going to communicate with his people... He would do it in a way that is much more magnificent than writing a book. And so the Bible gets cast aside as a time-bound artifact of the faith. Something that was needed for people in the past, but something that is no longer necessary for a relationship with God. And what I would say is that argument works if you're dealing with Scripture as something that is dead. Right? If God gave uh, his words to people and then kind of walked away from the situation and let them pass it along and, and, and write it down and, and, and interpret it, then we can treat the Bible like a game of telephone. Right? If you've ever played that game. Right? We can doubt the, what we have now because we could say, who knows what happened from the time God gave it to us until now. If the word of God is not living, then we're right to doubt its accuracy. Which is why it's so reassuring that God doesn't work that way. Instead, what God has done is recorded his self-revelation through divine inspiration. Right? He didn't even just have people write it down. He wrote it through them. But his part in the process doesn't end there. 
No, he continues to work through his spirit to apply his truth to his people. And so our confidence in scripture does not come from those who God worked through to get it to us. Our confidence in scripture comes from the fact that he is working in his word. Now, this doesn't just mean that the Bible is bigger than its writers and its transcribers and its translators. It also means that the Bible is not limited by its reader. Right? Let me repeat that. The fact that the word of God is living and active means that its power cannot be restrained by the person reading it. And this takes away our excuses. Right? No longer can we say, well, it's just too difficult for me to understand. Uh, that's not my learning style. I'm not really a reader. That excuse works, again, if the Bible is nothing more than a book. But the fact that God is actively shaping his people through his word means that your inability is not enough to overcome the power of his word. His presence and, and activity in his word negates anything that you lack. Now, in order to make sense of how this works, we have to recognize what the word of God exists to do. The word of God is given to reveal the glory of God. And in one sense, God does this by providing a comprehensive description of himself. Right? If you read the Bible, you will see that there is history and prophecy and poetry, and there's kind of all these different pieces, and you could put them all together to, to understand the relationship of God to his creation. There is a truth there that is absolute and is universal. This is a truth that people who are not Christians can come to. They can read their Bible, and they can take some of these truths and some of these facts away. You can learn about God. At the same time, God also uses his word in a personal way to speak to his people individually. And that actually is what the author of Hebrews is touching on here. That when you interact with the word of God, it actually is transforming you. It is shaping not only your knowledge of God, but your, your posture towards him. This is why the Bible cannot simply be memorized and mastered. Because it's not just something to cram into your head. It is changing your heart and your mind as you read it. And so the work of God to sanctify his people through his word is something that he is actively accomplishing whenever you read your Bible. And this leads to peace because it means that your intelligence is not a hindrance to God's work. God is working in you. Every time you read his living and active word. Second thing the author of Hebrews says about the word is that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow. Now this gives us a little bit more clarity as to how it actually works, how it shapes us. And what the author says is the way it shapes us is by cutting. Right? The, again, the, the visual image we get here is of a two-edged sword that is cutting down through the flesh, that is separating. Separating what? Soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's cutting down and cut, separating things that are so tightly knit together. And so the concept here is that God's word through the spirit acts like a divider, carefully distinguishing between that which is of God and that which is not. 
Now, we often think of this process as, as conviction, right? Kind of, kind of scripture illuminates sin. It, it shows it to us. But this language of, of sword and of cutting, right, that's a bit more intense. What he's saying is, is, is sin is not just something that needs to be revealed. Our sin is something that needs to be cut out. And as God's word cuts down, it, it surgically removes that which is destroying us. Now, I'd say this idea of, of, of God's discipline being like that of a surgeon is helpful. right? Because this cutting away is an issue of judgment. God is judging between that which is good and that which is evil. That which we should be doing and should have in us and that which we should not. But as he pierces us, he pierces towards healing. He cuts out that which is poisoning us. And so what we see is, is God in this, in this act of piercing and punishing uses this pain for a purpose. What God is doing in our lives is actively separating who we were created to be to all that has come in and made us something else. Now, if you have a cancerous tumor, right, you can choose not to have it removed. And some people do. Right? You could claim that this growth inside of you is part of you, and how dare you point that out and, and say that it should be removed. But for most of us, while cancer is part of us, most of us wouldn't have a problem with it getting cut out. Because we're well aware that it's bad for us. That leaving it there is going to cause us more problems. And so what we see here is God is doing the same. He works to separate out the cancer of sin so that we can be freed from the burden of its sickness. And so this, this cutting down is, is moving us toward his perfect peace. And the pain we feel along the way is necessary for us to ever be healthy. Which means when we consider the punishments and the judgments and the discipline of God, we should always see it through the lens of peace. God's work in our hearts is aimed towards his eternal glory. He is moving us forward to his future perfection. And this leads us to peace because it allows us to admit that we are not complete. Now, in a sense, we know that. If somebody asked us, we would give the right answer. Yeah, yeah, no, I still have, I still have a ways to go. But so much of our lives is pretending that we have it all together. And part of the reason why we're afraid to admit fault is because we want to keep up the facade. And so the fact that we know that God is surgically removing the sin within us allows us to admit that we are still far from who we should be. But with God's help, we will get there. Third thing that the author of Hebrews says is that, that the word is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right, this is a result of God's kind of surgical cutting here. Because he has now done all this separating, because he has now cut down, he, all is now seen for what it is. Right, I just mentioned that we create all sorts of layers, we create all sorts of facades in our lives to pretend that we are more put together than we are. And a lot of why we do this is fear. We are afraid that if people see who we actually are, if they see the truth that is buried under all of those layers, that they will reject us. 
And so instead of facing that, we put on a front. Even more of that than that, we hide away parts of ourselves that we don't want seen. And in this, I'm not just talking about sin. I'm talking about weaknesses and insecurities and fears. There's so much of us that we know is there, but we don't want anyone else to know is there. And we think that if we bury these things and keep them hidden, that it will keep us safe. But what it actually does is it forces us and it forces all of our relationships to operate through barriers. We become defensive and guarded because too much of our relational interactions are defined by shame. And so while the idea that God can see us completely how we are, right, that we are fully exposed is terrifying. He knows all the things that you don't want anyone to know. All that stuff that you have buried to make sure nobody can see. He sees it all. But the good news is, none of that has caused him to reject you. Right? Our fear of being seen is that if people see us, they will reject us. But God knows exactly who you are and loves you. I've always loved how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which is to say he doesn't love the Instagram version of you or the, the front that you put on for others or the future idea of yourself once you get it all together. No, he knows every part of you down to your darkest thoughts and intentions. And with that, he says, you are mine. This leads to peace because it means that your belonging is not going to change based on you being found out. The one relationship in your life that truly matters the most is based on him. Here's how the author of Hebrews lays it out for us in verse 13. It says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, this idea of, of being naked and exposed, um, this, is, this is a, a phrase that's used in the Bible quite a bit. Um, it's used actually twice in, in Genesis uh, 2 and 3, um, in the story of Adam and Eve. And the idea of being naked and exposed is actually used kind of two different ways in that story. First, we see it as a description of the perfect relationship. Right, when God makes Adam and Eve, he, uh, God presents Eve to Adam, and Adam sings a song. I always love that part. The first thing, he's like, yeah! Um, right? And then, this is the way that the Bible describes their relationship. It says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so the, the picture here is that they see each other for who they are. They're, they're entirely vulnerable and yet accepted. Right, this is the last sentence of Genesis chapter 2. It parallels God's statement at the end of Genesis chapter 1 that all was very good. Right? So at the end of Genesis 1, we say, see, creation is all very good. At the end of chapter 2, we see relationship is all very good. Vulnerable, known, and accepted without shame. Now, in the Bible, this does not last very long. Right? The very next chapter, uh, Adam and Eve sin. And once again, we see the idea of being naked and exposed described. This time, it's in a negative way. 
right? They sin, God comes looking for Adam. He calls out to Adam. This is Adam's response to God when God comes looking for him. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so what we see is all of a sudden being known brings fear. And the reason why it changes is because Adam now has something to hide. But God responds here in a loving way. Right? God has two things, or does two things here to combat this. First, he makes a promise. Right? And his promise is that he will restore the world to perfection. He will defeat, defeat Satan's sin and death. He will crush the head of the serpent. And he will create a community free from shame that his people will once again dwell in. We see this promise then fulfilled on the whole other end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so the picture here is of a community that exists without any hindrance or sorrow. God has removed every reason to fear, every reason to mourn, every reason to be ashamed. But in the Genesis story, he does something else. The other thing that he does is he clothes Adam and Eve. He actually covers their shame. And so what we see is while God intends to fully redeem and restore over here, it's not like he doesn't do anything until we get there. No, he also actively cares for his people in the meantime. Now, this grace shown to Adam and Eve in the redemptive promise and of the covering of their shame, these are all pointing forward to Jesus. Jesus is the means by which Satan will be defeated. Jesus is also the one who covers our shame as we wait. Which is to say, our faith is not just based on things that have happened or will happen in the future. Our faith is based on what is happening right now. The peace that God is, is actively interceding for us. Jesus is going to the Father on our behalf on a regular basis. And his life is covering our shame. But it's not like the story of Adam and Eve where he gives us clothes that just, that just kind of give, are given once. Instead, the picture that the Bible gives is that he is continually applying his grace to us. He is continually pleading our case. John Calvin describes this process of interceding by saying, Jesus turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession, he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. Which means that being seen for who we are is no longer something that we have to fear. Because he knows us. He loves us. He's actively covering us. The author of Hebrews then encourages us to make this our motivation. Knowing who God is and what he's doing for us should become for us what is propelling us in all of our life. He says this in verse 14. This was our call to worship today. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, is in every, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Another well-known section of scripture, another one that you probably have seen pulled out and used to describe specifically the sympathy of Christ toward us, right? That he knows what we are going through because he has experienced it. And this familiarity is a comfort to us, but I think it takes on a whole different level when we look at it in the context of Hebrews chapter 4. See, the reason why Jesus' sympathy is so important to us is because of who he is. We need more than sympathy in this life, right? Sympathy is not enough. What we need is a sympathetic savior. This, t- this sermon is titled Greater Than Tolerance, um, and the reason that it's titled that is because we live in a society that tells us that acceptance and belonging will be achieved through learning to tolerate one another. That we can all get along by simply being more accepting. And that by being more accepting, we will create a better world and everything will be wonderful. But this is built on the shallow, a shallow concept of peace. The idea that peace is fulfilled by merely removing conflict. Right, that peace is giving everyone a pass and all getting along most of the time. But as we said, biblical peace or shalom is everything as it should be. And so a community of sinful people cannot just pretend away the effects of sin. You can't just tolerate away destructive behavior. And you know that if you've ever been in any sort of like kind of toxic, abusive relationship, you can't just go, let's just agree to disagree. No, like something is there that needs to be dealt with. Something needs to be gotten rid of. See, back in the story of Adam and Eve, when they saw their shame, they weren't just experiencing bad feelings about their sin. Right? No, they were feeling shameful because what they had done was shameful. They were actually seeing their sin in its correct light. They were recognizing the broken nature of their humanity that sin had created. And in order to then have true peace, they didn't need God to come down and go, it's cool. Right? No, they needed someone to come and do the work of healing, fixing what had been broken. You can't just coach away the effects of sin. And this is why our sympathetic Savior is such good news. Because in order to have intercession, we need both someone who can approach a holy God and someone who can represent our humanity. And what these verses in Hebrews make clear to us is that Jesus is the only one who can stand between God and our sin as a mediator. And so in these verses, it tells us he passed through the heavens, which is to say he is fully God. This is repeated over and over through the first four chapters of Hebrews to make clear he is God, which gives him all the rights of divinity. He can go to God on our behalf because he is one with them, right? Even the kids know that. Jesus, God, right? But the amazing thing about Jesus is not what he can do. The most amazing thing about Jesus is that he chooses to do it, right? Being God means that there's nothing that we have to offer him. There's nothing that he lacked. We don't benefit him in any way. He didn't have to pass through the heavens and enter into human form, but he did. He did, and he was compelled by his own loving goodness. 
And that, to me, is one of the greatest things in the world because if Jesus' actions were based on accomplishing some specific thing, then I'd have to wonder if he's actually going to continue to do it. Or if there's something that I can do to all of a sudden become unlovable. But the fact that all of his actions are based on his character, on his love, means that we can have the confidence that he will continue to love us. Even as we continue to be unlovable. Jesus has the ability to represent us to the Father, and he has chosen to do this based on his overflowing love. Second thing it says is that he's able to sympathize with our weakness. Right? He, he knows what it's like to struggle in the flesh. And so when he intercedes for us, he doesn't do it like a public defender. Right? Yeah, I'll defend this guy. It's my job, I guess. Right? I'm supposed to represent you, but I'm not going to become emotionally involved in this in any way. Um, maybe that's not what public defenders are like, but that's what I have gotten the general idea of. No, Jesus knows what it's like to be human. He understands the limitations of the flesh. And his intercession is as one who deeply cares for those who are suffering under the weight of sin and shame. He doesn't represent us reluctantly and passionless, right? It's my job. No, he is continually making our case as one who loves us, who cares for us. It then says he was, in every respect, he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Which means while Jesus understands our weaknesses, he proved himself faithful in the flesh. This is necessary for him to be able to represent humanity at the cross, right? As the perfect spotless lamb, the sacrifice. If Jesus merely sympathized with our weaknesses and shared in them, he would just be another person struggling under the weight of sin. Someone walking alongside us with the same problems. He would understand us, but he wouldn't be able to do anything about it. But in love, Jesus faced every temptation and said no. And what gave him the ability to reject all of the temporary promises of sin, all of the things that we say yes to all the time, was his loving dedication to bring his people to peace. He lived without sin so that he could become sin for us. And so what we see in all of this is that Jesus didn't need to come to earth, but he did. He lived a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice to fulfill the promise of God to defeat sin and shame. And he is now working actively to usher his people into shalom by covering them as the intercessor who represents us as worthy before God. And at the same time, God is working through his word to shape us into a people who can stand before him on our own eventually, complete. And so in all of this, we are recipients of the promise. We are recipients of grace. We are the ones who are having our shame covered. We are the ones who had our sins paid for. We are the ones being interceded for. We are the ones God is sanctifying through his word. And we are the ones who for no reason other than God's goodness get to live in the joy of future glory. And we receive all of this because of God's love toward us. And it's not just a love that, that was given, it's a love that is, is actively covering and sanctifying us every single day. 
And the reason why we can have faith in that, really the, really the reason why we can have faith at all, is because we know the one who calls us his children is doing the work to make sure we get home. Now, there's two exhortations in this passage, right? Most of what I've said is all kind of like, this is who God is. This is what he's doing. There's two things that he says, now this is how you respond. He said, let us hold fast our confession. And the second is, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Which is to say, we can trust in what has been promised And we can come to God in weakness because we know that he understands, that he cares, and that he's working to bring us to his perfect peace. Each week when the church gathers, we get together to remind ourselves of this because so much of the time, we don't think about this at all. We're trying to get through the day. We're trying to get kids to go to sleep. We're trying to work with a boss who is really mean. to All of those things get in the way of what is actually going on and so much greater When we get together, we do this by reading and being shaped by his word. But we also do this when we take communion, right? Where we participate in the body and blood of Jesus to remember not only what he did, but what he is doing in our lives right now. Communion invites us to reflect on Christ's continual intercession for us. That's why we keep doing it. And we can be sure that we can have peace because we have a Savior who is always there for us and who promises to always hear us in our times of need. Let's pray.